Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. Yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1.9 if necessary, and then we'll begin our study. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to come together this morning to study your word. We thank you that you have revealed your mind to us, that we can understand who you are, understand your will for our lives. We thank you above all for the grace that you have given to us, first its salvation, that we might have a salvation that is not dependent on who we are or what we do, but a salvation that is dependent solely and exclusively on what you do. Father, we thank you for all that you have given us with salvation, the ability to live the spiritual life, the indwelling of God, the Holy Spirit, and the filling of the Holy Spirit. Father, we thank you for your word, the completed canon of Scripture, that by it we may learn uh, to live in such a manner as to reflect your character and to glorify you. Now, Father, as we study your word this morning, we pray that you would help us to see how these things apply to our own lives, our own thinking, that we might glorify you and advance to spiritual maturity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Every now and then I hear somebody make some comment, uh, somewhat negative perhaps, towards hymn singing in churches. Now we all know there are problems with certain contemporary forms of, uh, of uh, singing that goes on in churches, but and sometimes folks don't like to sing because they just don't happen to be a good singer. However, if you happen to look at Ephesians 5.18 sometime in the verses which follow, you will discover that uh, singing is a vital part of the spiritual life as a consequence of being filled with the Spirit. And Ephesians 5.18, we're told to be filled by uh, means of the Spirit. And after that command, we have a series of participles which describe certain consequences of being filled with the Spirit. And in verse 19 we read, Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. So singing hymns and singing uh, some of the great hymns of the faith, especially the ones, primarily the ones that have solid doctrinal content, are part of the spiritual life, and it's not something to be uh, considered just sort of uh, an addition that's tacked on at the beginning of church or something that that's just what people do traditionally. It's uh, it's a vital part of Christian worship and as such part of the spiritual life and a result of being filled by the Spirit. We're not like uh, one congregation in the 1730s on this particular date that sang 100 hymns one night. So some of you can be thankful for that. But it marked a major turning point in the history of Christianity, especially as it related to the new colonies in America. There was a group of folks who became known as Moravians, in Germany during the early 1700s. They were founded by a uh, a German or Prussian nobleman by the name of Count von Zinzendorf. And they had an area uh, on his estate at Herrenhut. They had a training ground, and they would gather together, and they would worship, and they would pray, and they were taught the Scriptures. But Zinzendorf's uh, passion 
was evangelism and missions. And he challenged the people who came to Heron Hut to study the word to take the gospel throughout the world. And on one particular night, they commissioned two missionaries to send to the New World. And they were to leave the next day, and on that particular night of their commissioning, they sang a hundred hymns. And so the next day they left, and they went to the island of St. Thomas. Not bad duty today for those who would be missionaries, but back then it was a little primitive. And they went, and they had a... Uh, malaria epidemic that broke out, and one of the missionaries died in that epidemic. The others survived. As a consequence of their dedication, there were uh, hundreds of uh, colonists who became saved, and as a result of that, the modern missions movement, or modern missionary movement, was really born. Uh, later, uh, the Moravians had a major impact on uh a young man who was trying to find his way spiritually by the name of John Wesley. And on his way to the United States, he at, this, at that point he wasn't even saved yet. He was coming over as a missionary. And while he was on board ship, these Moravian missionaries gave him the gospel. Now, it was not until he returned to England after he came to Georgia and had some a couple of adventures here, and he didn't quite know what he was doing, and he was basically told to go home. It wasn't until Wesley went back to England that he eventually uh, understood the gospel and was saved, but it was a consequence of what he was told and the explanation of the of the gospel by those uh, original Moravian missionaries. So the next time that we sing two or three hymns or and you decide, well, I want to get past the hymns and get into the teaching, just be thankful that we're not singing a hundred hymns before we get to the teaching. Open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and we continue our study on pastor teachers. We began last time looking at the first verse. Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Now, Paul was facing a particular problem with the congregation at Corinth, one that is not uncommon today, and that is the problem of authority. They were rejecting his authority, and they were, in actuality, they were uh, in rebellion against him and everything that he taught, and that was one of the reasons he had to write this epistle with such a strong message of correction that will come about when we get to the end of this particular chapter. But the issue for every pastor is authority, and the issue in many congregations for pastors is authority because congregations usually don't understand uh, that the pastor is not the employee of the local church. I'm always amazed when I have observed churches looking for pastors and the number of mistakes and the number of things that deacon boards do in the process of looking for a pastor. Now, one of the things that impressed me about this congregation when I came here four years ago is the deacon board was not making those kinds of mistakes. So I'm not talking about what went on here. But I have had uh, the occasion in the last year to observe two or three churches that have had a pastor resign or a pastor who has gone to be with the Lord, and then they have had to look for a pastor. And it is at that time when one pastor leaves a congregation and that congregation has to seek a new pastor, that you really get an evaluation of the previous pastor's ministry and how well that pastor did in training his congregation. And this is really something that I think the Lord has brought home to me in the last few months. We never know how long we're going to be anywhere. As a pastor, I don't know if I'm going to be here another six months or another six years or another 16 years. But part of my job is to train you so that when I leave, either uh, the Lord takes me somewhere else or the Lord promotes me to heaven, that if I leave, you are prepared as a congregation to be able to think through the issues and evaluate a pastoral candidate intelligently. And see, one of the things that happens today is that there's all kinds of different issues and different acts and spasms that come along in the church and often congregations are not always aware of the um, 
fine shades of meaning that theologians get in seminaries to certain phrases and to certain words. And so unless they are taught by a pastor who is himself knowledgeable in these areas, they often don't know what to listen for and how to spot certain er errors in theology or, or doctrine. Things may sound good superficially, but then when you begin to uh, investigate them and dig below the surface, you realize that that's, that phrase was really sort of a, a catchphrase that really meant something uh, quite different. So it's important as a pastor to train a congregation so that they are able to function during that interim period when they don't have a pastor and so that their deacons, the pulpit committee, the pastoral search committee, or whatever it's called, can function in a way that is going to produce someone in the, for the future in the con- congregation as a pastor that ha- holds to sound doctrine. It's sad today how few pastors even do that. But, you know, it's not just something for pastors. That's also true for parents. See, you as a parent have a job, and that is to work yourself out of a job. It's the same principle. As a parent, your job is to train and prepare your children so that by the time they're 18 years of age, they have all the skills, all the knowledge necessary to be able to go out and live life independently. Now, that doesn't mean that you're not going to ever be around or you can't give them advice, but your job is to train them so that when they reach the age of of maturity, when they can live independently, that they have the skills necessary to live independently, and they have the the information needed to be able to make wise decisions and to be able to uh, discern what the real issues are in life, not get caught up in uh, in traps like credit card traps today. I mean, when I was in high school, or excuse me, when I was in college. You never saw college kids being offered credit cards where you sent off a kid to college or a kid graduates from high school, turns 18. They start uh, getting besieged with all of these credit card offers just like you do. And many young people have never been trained or taught to handle money well, never been given that level of responsibility, never had their own checking account, though at that age it should be a supervised checking account, but never given those those things, never taught how to balance a checkbook, never taught how to reconcile a checkbook, never taught how to responsibly handle money. All of a sudden they're out there and they're having to make these decisions and and they can get themselves in a tremendous amount of of uh, difficulty, and it may take them years to pull themselves out of it. So the principle is true. You, As a leader, part of your responsibility is to train those under you to function in your absence, function when you're, when you're gone. And that is part of what underlies some of the th- observations and principles I want to emphasize as we go through the first part of 1 Corinthians chapter 4, as we come to understand what God says the responsibilities of a pastor-teacher are. So this passage begins with a Greek particle, hutos, hutos actually, and it is, in some versions, it's translated, you will see at the beginning in, in the English, the first word will be thus, but that is incorrect. The word uh, hutos in the Greek actually means H-O-U-T-O-S actually means in such a way or in such a manner. And it points to what is about to be said. Whereas when you see an English word such as thus or therefore, it often points to the previous context as if it's drawing a conclusion. But this is the same word that we find in John 3.16 where we read, For God so loved, that, that particle that's translated so, is the same word that we have here, hutos, and it means for God loved the world in such a manner or in such a way. And then it describes the way or the manner in which God loved us by sending his son, his only begotten son, to die on the cross as a substitute for our sins. So the the word is not thus or therefore. It is in such a manner, and it points to what Paul is about to say. Let each man regard us, and this is the verb, the present middle imperative of logizomai, which means to think. It, as I pointed out last time, it has a, a passive form, but it has an active meaning. Each 
person is supposed to think a certain way about pastors, and this would include missionaries and evangelists, anyone who is in a professional uh, pastoral or professional Christian ministry. Every believer is in full-time Christian ministry from the time that they are regenerated. At that instant, you are given a spiritual gift to be used for the benefit of the body of Christ. And as you mature as a believer, that gift will become apparent. You will begin to operate in it, even though you may not really be sure at times what your own spiritual gift is. See, the issue isn't being able to identify your spiritual gift. That's one of the things that's become very popular in the last 30 or 40 years. And you'll go to some churches, and they'll have adult Sunday school classes uh, entitled How to Discern Your Spiritual Gift, and they'll give you some tests, not unlike those you get when you're in high school trying to figure out what kind of a career you should go into, what your particular talents are. And most of it's based on psycho- psychological principles, and it's not based on uh, on doctrine. The Scriptures make it clear that as you and I advance in our spiritual life, we have certain responsibilities. We're to function in almost all of the areas where there are spiritual gifts. We're to give. We're to help one another. We are to encourage one another. In fact, there's several places. First Thessalonians 5.18 is one that we are encouraged. We are told to admonish or encourage one another. And these are, that's all part of the, what it means to be in the body of Christ in the mutual ministry that God has given everybody. But aside from the fact that we're all given those individual responsibilities, we may not be gifted in that area, but there are those who have the gift of evangelism, those who have the gift of giving, those who have the gift of administration, those who have the gift of helps, those who have the gift of mercy, and those will function in those gifts. Now, there are some who have the gift of pastor-teacher, but either because they have failed to go through the training necessary or because they are God has not put them in a position where they can function in that gift, they are, as it were, on the sidelines. They're sitting on the bench, and this does not apply to them. Just because you have a spiritual gift of evangelism or pastor-teacher does not mean you you automatically have any authority. That authority comes with the office that is held when you get into that position. But I know of many cases, for example, when I was in seminary and back in Dallas, that made a very weird situation in a place like Dallas, Texas. Uh, Not only did you have a Dallas Theological Seminary in Dallas, but over in Fort Worth you had Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. That was the largest seminary in the world. Dallas was the largest evangelical or independent evangelical seminary in the world. And so you had two major towns there that had a just an incredible influx of men with the gift of pastor-teacher. But they're all going to churches. They're sitting in churches. They're no different from any other member of the congregation. Just because all of these men had the gift of pastor-teacher didn't mean they had any necessary authority that went with that because they did not hold the office of pastor-teacher and would not, even if they were ordained, would not hold that office until they were promoted by the Lord into that position. Now, this is the issue here, is authority, and we raised the question last time, how should a person think about their pastor-teacher, and how should the, pa- the authority of the pastor-teacher relate to the authority of the deacon board and the local church? And in that context, I covered the fact that there are three major approaches to church government. And there's a fourth view I did not mention last time, and I will this time. But the first view is called the Episcopal form of government. And for those of you who grew up in a Roman Catholic church environment, that's an Episcopal form of government, where you have a hierarchy that goes beyond the local church. And you that actually came into practice in the early 2nd century, and is not what is taught by the Bible, and it it violates uh, the autonomy of the local church. This is where you have uh, local pastors are under the authority of someone higher than them called a bishop, and that bishop may be under someone higher than them called an archbishop and so forth. This is from the Greek word episkopos, 
And episkopos is the word for bishop. Episkopos is the word for bishop, so this that word in the Greek emphasizes the authority of that individual. Episkopos is used for pastor-teacher. So you have three words for pastor-teacher. You have uh, presbyteros, which, emphasize, which is the word for elder. That's the second category. You have episkopos, the word translated bishop in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. And then you have a third word, uh, poimenos, which is shepherd or pastor. And these words are used synonymously, and they are used in different passages, and each word emphasizes or brings out a different aspect of the function of the man we call uh, pastor-teacher. Episcopus emphasizes his authority. Elder emphasizes his position of, uh, as a, of spiritual maturity as a leader in the congregation, and shepherd or poimenos, which I don't have up here on the board, shepherd or poimenos pastor emphasizes his leadership position and his role as one who feeds doctrine to the congregation. Now, the elder, elder rule is the second type of government, sometimes called Presbyterian government. Presbyterian from the Greek word presbyteros, translated elder. And usually in elder congregations, what elder rule congregations, is that you have the congregation as a whole, and they uh, appoint in, some, in different manners, or just usually they say they just recognize certain men who have spiritual leadership skills and spiritual maturity, and they identify them as elders, and these elders basically run the church. It's in some cases, in worst-case scenarios, it's like an oligarchy. Congregation has no say in anything. The elders uh, run everything. In fact, I know of one situation in a re- that took place in a church recently where they were looking for a pastor, and the elders had their pastor search committee, and they looked for about a year and a half for a pastor, and when they found one, they, uh, the announcement in the bulletin read something like this. Let's see if I can remember. On uh, Sunday, such and such a date, uh, Reverend so-and-so will come and, uh, as a candidate for a pastor at this church, and at the conclusion of the morning service, we will vote to approve him as pastor. So there's really no option being given to the congregation, and it's... Um, it can borderline on a dictatorship. It doesn't have to, though, as I pointed out last time. I've been in elder rule churches that function no differently from the way we function. Even though technically this, these are different uh, approaches, it really depends on the individual church constitution, and it depends on the spiritual maturity of the people involved. I've been in con- congregational churches. That's the third type. I've been in congregational churches. Where, and this emphasizes the fact that the congregation is the final authority in the con- not the final authority, but is the authority on matters of, of practice, and they vote at congregational meetings on various matters from finances to uh, certain areas of church policy. And in my very first church, this was like a congregational government gone to seed. It was like raw democracy where the board of deacons was afraid to make any decision. Uh, they wouldn't even decide what color the church was to be painted or whether or not the church ought to be vacuumed next week without wanting to call a congregational meeting to make sure it was okay with everybody. You know, that that's the worst-case scenario of a congregational uh, government. And the... Um, you know, the, to the other extreme, the congregation may simply do nothing more than to vote uh, approval for deacons once a year and never have any say whatsoever. And that's not a whole lot different functionally than an elder rule congregation because they have no input other than simply approving deacons and then the deacons make all the decisions the next year. So you have all kinds of different blends of these systems. And then the fourth system that I did not mention last time, for lack of a better term, we'll just call it pastor rule. And in these congregations, the pastor makes all the decisions. 
the deacons don't function like our deacons do. They uh, in in these kinds of churches, the pastor will simply appoint different men as deacons, give them certain responsibilities. Your job is to make sure that the grounds are taken care of, and your job is to make sure that. Uh, that the finances are taken care of, and your job is to uh, make sure that uh, the Sunday school is taken care of, and that's it. They don't meet. They don't make decisions. He makes every single decision. In fact, I've seen some churches, and I completely disagree with this, but I've seen some churches like this where the pastor is one of the, is one of the signatures and in some cases is the only signature on the checking account. And that can lead to some tremendous abuses and has been. So you, you run into all kinds of uh, various shades of church government. And what I've decided is that it really doesn't matter what these individuals are called. I've been, as I've said before, I have been in congregational government where you had a board of deacons that were so afraid of the con- con- congregation they wouldn't let anybody lead, including the pastor. And I have been in elder rule churches where the pastor was the leader of the elders and they did not try to usurp his authority in any way. And they took care of various uh, oversight in different areas of of what we might call spiritual application, especially in terms of uh, visitation and hospital, different areas uh, of, of concern and, and, and application in that area. So you have different kinds of situations, but I've also been in elder rural churches where the elders functioned like a board of, of dictators and the congregation had no authority whatsoever and the pastor was considered just another elder and they made decisions and policy regardless of what he said. So you have good forms and you have bad forms of every one of these, and it just depends on the spiritual maturity of those of those people involved. The question that we have to answer, though, that we have raised is what is the relationship of the pastor to the board? In our particular situation, we have a con- congregation, and that congregation votes to approve certain deacons. Over the deacons and over the church as the leader is the pastor-teacher. The pastor-teacher's responsibility is to lead the congregation, and he does so primarily through the teaching of doctrine, through the Word of God. Secondly, the pastor-teacher sets certain policies certain goals and certain and the agenda for the congregation the deacon's responsibility is to carry out those policies and to implement those policies to take general policies general statements that are uh suggested they're given by the pastor in his role as leader and then they work out the details in terms of implementation they put together the action plan and how those goals are going to be achieved and how those policies are going to be implemented the deacons <coughs> function at, but they're accountable also to the congregation Now, they're not accountable to the congregation in some sort of extreme way, but remember in life, everybody is accountable to somebody. Nobody is autonomous. Nobody is outside of somebody's authority. Even the pastor is under some sort of accountability. He's under the authority of God and also at some level under the authority of the deacons. And that's the question we're really asking here is to what degree is the pastor under the authority of the deacons? We we saw last time that Paul uses a a significant word in his first uh, clause here. He says, "Each man, let each man think about us in such a manner as servants of Christ." And the word that he uses here is the Greek word uh, "husteretas." And "husteretas" has an interesting uh, background. I left my glasses at home this morning, so I'm not even sure I'm rightly spelling anything. H-U-S-T-L-O-N-E-R-E-T-A-S. And this is a word that comes is originally derived from a 
Greek word, eretas, E-R-R-E-T-A-S, which had to do with rowers in a trireme. Now, a trireme was a galley ship that had three rows of slaves down below who were rowing the galley. And so it originally came from that word and developed to refer to those who were underlings, those who were under the authority of someone else carrying out a job for that person who was in authority over them. So it came to refer to a servant, but it looks at the servant in terms of his authority relationship to his master and that his role is to carry out the wishes and commands of his master and he is not there to carry out his own wishes, his own agenda, his own plans. And this is a problem we run into today in many, many churches is that pastors get into a local congregation and they start operating on power lust, and they start running the congregation according to what they want, and the Word of God really doesn't matter. I was told recently of a situation where a pastor who had not gone to seminary, did not have any kind of formal training whatsoever, was given a uh, Bible study program for his computer, thinking that that would help him to get at least into the text a little better. And after he had been using this program for a few weeks, he was asked how it was going and how he was doing. He said, oh, I got rid of that. You know, if I, had to, if I paid attention to what I learned from doing that, I would have to change everything I taught. And see, we, we, we laugh about that. It's sad. But there are a lot of churches and a lot of pastors in this country who really look at the pastor as some way to have authority, have some kind of influence over people, and they're just up there following their own agenda, and they have no real clue what the Bible is all about. They have no understanding of theology, and they are what the Bible calls false shepherds or false pastors. The pastor, the word huperetas emphasizes that the pastor and the servant of Christ is in subordination to the authority of Jesus Christ. So when a church calls a pastor, you have to look at the pastor not as the employee of the church, but as the servant of Christ. So he's under Christ's authority. He's not an employee of the church. When the church pays a pastor, it's not to be looked on in the same way that you look on your paycheck. You are, you go and you work for some company or some corporation and they pay you for the work that you do. A pastor is supported by a congregation so that he can carry out the work that Christ has for him to do. And that's the difference. And every pastor is going to be a little different because God has a specific role and a specific vision that through the Holy Spirit he communicates to that pastor and that that pastor is going to function differently. It's going to have to do with partially with his own personality. It's also going to have to do with the other spiritual gifts that he might have. I have known pastors who have the spiritual gift of mercy in combination with pastor-teacher, and they uh, relish in going down to the hospital and spending time with folks who are sick, folks who are going through very difficult times, challenged, uh, challenged by health problems, and they just have a tremendous way to, to minister two folks who were sick, and I know one individual and who just, I'd never seen anybody function like this. It was so obvious he had the gift of mercy. Uh, but I've known other pastors who didn't have the gift of mercy. They were great teachers, but in terms of personal relationship, getting close to them, it was sort of like nuzzling up to a porcupine. You know, they just they just didn't have that kind of, of personality. Their teaching was excellent, but they had a different kind of personality. Never confuse the spiritual gift of pastor-teacher with a personality. God uses all kinds of different personalities to function as leaders in the congregation and to teach his word. There are some men that are going to have a ministry that is primarily restricted to their congregation. No pastor should seek or try to have a broader ministry. There are some, though, that God will uh, open the doors for and raise up and give them opportunities to have ministry beyond the local congregation. 
But that is not something you should seek, not something a pastor should seek or desire or try to promote for himself. Remember, uh, they who build a house labor in vain unless the Lord builds it. You let the Lord develop the ministry and not try to go out and promote yourself or promote your own ministry. And once again, you have a lot of people, pastors, who do that simply because they are operating on a a power lust or approbation lust motivation in much of the ministry. Just remember, being a pastor teacher doesn't keep you from being in error. It doesn't keep you from sin. It doesn't mean your sin nature is any less powerful than anybody else's. I've known a lot of pastor teachers in my life, and trust me, their sin natures are just as strong and just as powerful as yours are. And never be shocked when you run into a pastor that get, goes into carnality. It can happen to any pastor. It can happen to any one of us. And we can all uh, cave in at certain points to the sin nature. And we can all come under sin nature control. And so don't get too shocked when you see that happen. And you, you often want run into people who have some sort of idealistic view of some pastor. They think he's so wonderful. He teaches the word. He must know so much. He always seems to have an answer for everything. And then they see him fail, and they just don't understand how it happens. Well, it's one thing to know what the answer is. And if you're a parent, you ought to at least understand this. It's one thing to know what the right thing to do is. It's another thing sometimes to implement it yourself. And we're all growing, and that's why pastors need to be dealt with in grace, just as everyone else needs to be dealt with in grace, is because uh, God is working and producing spiritual growth in every one of us, and none of us is is perfect or impeccable. So the pastor-teacher is a servant of Christ. This emphasizes his authority relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. However, this does not mean that he is not accountable to a local congregation. So how is a pastor, and in what sense is a pastor accountable to a local congregation? Well, first of all, a pastor teacher is going to be accountable to a local congregation on the basis of the constitution of that Local congregation, whatever the, that constitution spells out in terms of, <clears throat> let's, in, in terms of his, uh, job responsibilities and what he's expected to do, whatever the constitution spells out in terms of his, uh, uh, whatever his, his other duties might be other than, other than teaching, all of that is spelled out in terms of any sort of uh, ethical or moral stipulations uh, that are spelled out in the Constitution, he's responsible for that as well. Uh, a sad but true fact today is that in some congregations or in many churches, there needs to be a clause inserted in the Constitution that it is not acceptable for the pastor teacher to engage in homosexual activity. That has become a major factor today uh, because in many Many denominations, they are having major battles over whether or not to ordain a homosexual. Now, you always have to remember that homosexual sin, as well as any sort of uh, adultery or fornication, just falls under the classification generally of sexual sin. And homosexual practice is different from someone who may have homosexual inclinations. Someone may, that may be the area of weakness in their sin nature. They may have it under control through doctrine and may not, uh, practice. That is fine. There is no, nothing in the Word of God that says that. For example, you may also have a pastor who has as a trend in his sin nature, uh, sex lust. And he, if he were left, uh, apart from the control of the Holy Spirit and no application of doctrine, might be the worst womanizer in the world. And there have certainly been some pastors and some, uh, uh, evangelists who have uh, national exposure who have demonstrated that they have those trends in their sin nature. But as long as that trend is under control and is not being implemented, then that is not 
a problem. So the issue is not what the trends of the sin nature might be. The issue is what is going to be accepted behavior. So a church constitution should spell out certain parameters, certain responsibilities, and certain expectations. Furthermore, you have biblical guidelines listed in passages such as Titus 1 and First uh, Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. And these biblical guidelines define what it means for a pastor to live a life that is above reproach. Now, there's always people who come along who have some kind of, uh, of uh, perfectionistic tendency, and they they look at a word like above reproach, and that means, well, you can't ever, there's nothing in them to criticize. Well, if you're going to look for a pastor who has nothing in them to criticize, you're never going to have a pastor. That is not what above reproach means. Above reproach is a general category that is then defined by the other qualifications in the passage. So let's just hold your place here and turn with me over to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. I don't have time to, and I'm not going to take the time to go through and exegete these qualifications, but we'll just briefly uh, comment on them. That is, I can read the text this morning. This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of bishop, he desires a good he desires a good thing. A bishop then must be blameless. That's above reproach in the New American Standard, and that is in the structure of this uh, this list. That is sort of the the summary. And everything else is going to define what it means to be above reproach. He is the husband of one wife. That does not mean that he is not divorced or that he is not remarried after the death of a spouse. It means that he is faithful to his wife. He is temperate. That means that he is, he is balanced. He has a, uh, objective mental attitude. He is What's the next word? What's the next word? Prudent. Okay. Oh, sober-minded. That's what it has. I just I can focus on about three letters and have to guess at the rest. Sober-minded also has to do with the fact that he is objective and has a, a solid uh, or stable mindset. He's sober-minded. He is of good behavior. That means that uh, outwardly he conforms to a solid uh, moral standard. He is hospitable. That means he's willing on occasion to open up his home, invite people over, invite people in, and he is not uh, wrapped up in keeping people out of his life. He is able to teach. He has the ability to teach the Word. He is not uh, not given over to violence. That means he's not a striker of person, so he's not going to uh, grab somebody, take him out in the parking lot, and... Uh, pound the crud out of them just because they are not listening to his teaching. He's not greedy for money. That means he's not doing it for money. That's not his motivation. Materialism is not the motivation of the pastor. But he is gentle, not quarrelsome, and not covetous. One who rules his own household well, uh, holding his children in submission. That doesn't mean he has to have children. See, there's some people who take all of these to an ex- to extremes. They think, well, husband of one wife needs means he has to be married. It doesn't mean he has to be married, but it does mean that it does exclude any women from being a pastor, because a pastor can't be the hu- I mean, a female pastor can't be the husband of anybody. She may want to be, but that's another problem. Uh, one who, uh, ru- uh, let me see, where, where are we? Not quarrelsome, not covetous. One who rules his own house well and his ch- keeps his children in submission. That doesn't mean, and if you look at the parallel passage in Titus, it doesn't mean that they're believers, but that he teaches them authority and that he is preparing them for adulthood. It doesn't mean that they're not going to exhibit patterns of teenage rebellion at times either, but that he generally is in control of his own household, because if he can't manage his own household, 
then how can he manage uh, the church? In verse 6, he's not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride he fall into the sin and condemnation of the devil. In other words, as a young believer, he can become arrogant that he uh, is looked to to know what the Scripture says and easily fall into pride and and uh, power, power lust. Moreover, he must have a good testimony or good reputation among those who are outside, that is, those who are unbelievers, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Now, these are general qualifications that are also expected of every single believer. I remember reading an article years ago that was like a breath of fresh air when it comes to analyzing this passage, and the title of the article is, Why is So Little Expected of a Bishop? See, the way it's usually, these passages are usually interpreted in such a way that hardly anybody can ever attain to to any of these qualifications. But if you trace these words through the New Testament, being above reproach, being blameless, being a husband and one wife, being faithful to your spouse, uh, raising your children to respect authority, being sober-minded, being uh, temperate, these are all expected of every believer. So all this is is a recognition that the pastor-teacher has reached a, a level of spiritual adulthood and is... Uh, practicing or applying doctrine in a somewhat consistent way in his own spiritual life. So the, this takes us back to what's the, what, in what way is the pastor under the authority of a local board or local congregation? He is answerable to them in that he fulfills his, 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 um, job responsibilities and duties as spelled out in that church constitution. And he is responsible to maintain the biblical qualifications of an elder. And if he violates that in any way, then there are clear regulations given in 1 Timothy chapter 6 that someone is supposed to go to him individually and privately and to point out the fact that, and usually one of the deacons point out that particular area of weakness. If he is not responsive, and for example, I know of a situation that just took place in a church down in Texas where the pastor was really sound doctrinally, but apparently he has been mismanaging the funds in the church for some time. The uh, In that particular church, they had elders, and the elders, a couple of elders went to him privately to try to straighten out the problem, and that took for about six months, but apparently he denied that there was a problem. He claimed uh, innocence. He had two tax lawyers and an accountant in the congregation, so uh, he was in trouble when they started looking at the books because they knew exactly what they were looking at, and they discovered what was going on. And because he continued to deny the problem, they eventually had to bring it before the congregation. And that's the procedure that is spelled out in 1 Timothy chapter 6, that you're not supposed to bring charges against an elder unless there are two or three witnesses. And if that pastor continues to be unresponsive, then... And those extreme cases, that has to be brought before the congregation because for the the deacons or elders to ask that pastor to resign, there should be clear evidence of malfeasance. And so in that particular case, they ended up having to hold a church trial. And it always amazes me when I see these things take place, and I know of a couple of other cases where they have the pastor dead to rights on some kind of problem and he continues to deny it. And then when they present all the evidence before the congregation, the congregation has to make a decision. They, the pastors always whine and blame it on somebody else. And it was some other, somebody else's fault or nobody understands. And you see the same thing with national leaders. We've produced a culture where nobody wants to accept responsibility for their own failures. And nobody has the maturity to just say, yes, you're right. I was out of line. I was carnal. You know, I'm going to deal with that, and the Lord's going to deal with that and move on. And in cases like that, when a, a pastor is out of line and is addressed by the by someone in the congregation, he needs to deal with it privately and not let it go any further than that. 
and then you forget it and move on just like you do with anybody else in the congregation to maintain the the pastor's right to privacy. Just because he fails doesn't mean that his dirty laundry needs to be uh, aired in front of everybody else, just as everybody else's dirty laundry needs to be kept uh, private and uh, should not be brought out in front of the congregation. So there, that is the only area, though, where you have a area of accountability is to make sure the pastor is not getting into false doctrine. If the pastor starts teaching something that is contrary to the Constitution then, or the doctrinal statement of the church, then there ought to be an opportunity for the deacons to sit down with him, study out the doctrine that is the issue, and then make a decision as to whether or not that is acceptable. But there are always checks and balances, and just because the pastor is under the authority of Christ doesn't mean there isn't some area of accountability to the congregation to keep him honest and to make sure that he is fulfilling his own responsibilities. So the area of responsibility to the board or to the congregation is limited. It's not in every area. He is not an employee of the church. It's not for the the uh, board of deacons or the board of elders, however the church is set up. It's not for the board of deacons to be looking over his shoulder to see what he's doing all the time. If he's not fulfilling his responsibilities, then it's going to be obvious uh, in, in when he teaches that he is not spending any time studying the Word. I remember an incident that occurred. Dan was telling me about this when he was down at uh, seminary this last year. Somebody came in to speak in chapel, and this guy was an assistant pastor at a church down there. And he said, now, remember, you pastors, you're not going to get to just go out there and study and teach all the time. You have to let people know that you're working. So you have to come out of your office, and you have to be doing things and be involved in various programs so people know that you're actually doing something. And the thing is, if you're studying 40 or 50 hours a week and doing your job, it will be apparent when you get in the pulpit. But if you're not studying 40 or 50 hours a week, um, I mean, but if you are studying 40 or 50 hours a week, people are going to know it. People are going to know exactly what you've been doing all week, and I think that's pretty evident uh, when I get in the pulpit what I've been doing during the week. The pastor's primary job is to study and teach, and this is what comes out in the next clause in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. He is a servant of Christ that emphasizes his position as under the authority of Christ. And second, he is a steward of the mysteries of God, a steward of the mysteries of God. The word translated steward is from the Greek word oikonomos. Oikonomos comes from two Greek words. It's a compound word. O-I-K-O-N-O-M-O-S. Oiko comes from oikos, which means house. Namas from the word law. Now, oikonomia, which is a form of this word, is the word from which we get our word administration or dispensation. And so dispensation has to do with the idea of stewardship or administration. And an oikonomos is a steward, and in, that's sort of an antiquated term for us. He is, another word would be a manager, somebody who's given certain responsibilities in the household to manage. And he was the uh, household administrator. For example, in a large household where there might be uh, 20 or 30 servants or slaves. He is the one who is over all of them and makes sure all of the business of the house is conducted properly. He would be set over the finances. He would be set over the training of the children, making sure that a pedagogue was there in order to train the uh, younger children in the household. It would be his responsibility to make sure all of the kitchen help functioned well and that food was was uh, purchased at the market and how it was prepared and the house was cleaned. Everything came under his responsibility. So he is an administrator. He has certain responsibilities. So the first phrase 
as a servant of Christ, emphasizes the position of authority that God has given the pastor-teacher. And the second indicates his responsibilities in that position. He is a steward of the mysteries of God. And this is the Greek word musterion, M-U-S-T-E-R-I-O-N. And this is used to refer to the revelation that is given in the New Testament that had not been previously revealed. It's not a mystery like a whodunit. It is. It refers to previously unrevealed doctrine. And in this context, of course, that refers to doctrine related to the church age and the spiritual life of the believer in the church age. So the responsibility of the pastor-teacher is to communicate doctrine related to the spiritual life of the church age. It is his responsibility to teach the word as uh, Paul says to Timothy later on in 1 Timothy. He is to uh, exegete the text, he is to study the word, and he is to teach and explain it in such a way that people are able to understand it and see how these things apply in their own life. It is not the pastor's responsibility to grow the church, to get involved in church growth, to go out, to glad-hand everybody, to get involved in various visitation programs and go knocking on doors through the neighborhoods to invite everybody to come to church. It's not the pastor's job to build a church. One of the problems today is that pastors are confusing their role with Christ's role. Jesus said, I will build the church. Pastors, your job is to feed the sheep. And in most churches today, the pastor thinks his job is to build the church, and it's the Sunday school teacher's job to feed the sheep. But that is a perversion, a complete perversion of Scripture. So the pastor is a steward of the mysteries of God. He is responsible to communicate the doctrine related to the spiritual life of the church age to the congregation. Then we come to his accountability in verse 2. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. It's required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. Actually, the word translated trustworthy is pistos, which has to do with being faithful. He is faithful to his responsibilities. In this case, Paul says, it is required of stewards. A steward takes that term, is, takes us right back to the fact that the pastor teacher is a steward of the mysteries of God, and what's required of a steward is that he's faithful in that responsibility. So if the pastor is a manager or administrator of the doctrines of the New Testament, then what he's supposed to what God is holding him accountable for is faithfully teaching and communicating the doctrines of the Word of God. He is not accountable for how much the church grows over a two- or three-year period. He's not accountable for the finances of the church and how much money is being raised. He's not accountable for uh, taking care of the church property. All of these things you run into in various different kinds of churches where you have... Uh, people who bring all kinds of human view, viewpoint ideas into the church. What happens is you get, you get people who are working in, in their various careers, and they are expected to function and perform according to certain standards. When I was a pastor at a previous church, I had three elders who were all entrepreneurs. And they were all involved in businesses where you set up business plans and you set up uh, a rigorous set of standards and goals. One guy was a management consultant, and he would go in and turn companies around. And so you were always working with these very concrete goals and objectives that a company or corporation would achieve during the year. And if you didn't meet those, then you would come in and revamp everything and reorganize so that you could achieve those goals. And that's great in business. But one of the greatest, one of the great harms to Christianity in this country in the last hundred years has been imposing a business model on the congregation. That's what's happened when you come to some churches where they have uh, deacons and trustees. There's no mention of trustees in the Bible. That is a category of leadership that has been imposed on the church by a business model. The church may operate on certain sound 
business principles, but it is not a business. It is not a model. It is not set up like like a corporation. It's not like Exxon. It's not like um, any large corporation with a board of directors and a and a CEO. And there may be similarities. There may be some parallels, but you always get into problems when you start taking principles of leadership and management and accountability from the business world and then impose those on the church. And I used to just pull my hair out with these guys because every every year we went through the same thing. Well, you need to set goals for the next year. And they always wanted these things in tangible goals. Well, the spiritual life is the only thing measurable. The only thing God holds a pastor accountable to is that he faithfully studies and teaches the word. That's the issue. It's not anything else related to the church because it is Jesus Christ who builds the church. It is Jesus Christ who provides the hearers, and it is not up to the pastor. His job is to simply study the word and faithfully teach the word of God to the congregation. And the sad thing is is that many pastors don't do that. They are not faithful in their task, and they don't understand it because their task is too often muddied by all kinds of denominational and cultural expectations which are placed upon the pastor. He's expected to be involved in local politics. He's expected to to go down to the to the hospital. I, I was involved in my first congregation at a church that had uh, those kinds of expectations. Uh, they always expected the pastor to be at the hospital. It took it takes years to retrain people who have been taught poorly, or some pastor who came in and did everything that everybody thought they ought to do, and they never had time to study, and they never had time to develop. And the issue that is going to be at the judgment seat of Christ for the pastor is his faithfulness. First of all, he needs to be faithful in his preparation. And that means that if you have the gift of pastor-teacher, part of faithfulness is that you go to seminary or a Bible college to get training. You do what you need to do to learn Greek and Hebrew and theology and church history. You, you will always go, if you go to a seminary in this world, this fallen world, you will go somewhere where you have to take classes from seminary professors you don't agree with. That's part of learning humility. That's part of learning teachability. And in any class, whether you agree, when you agree with the professor, you learn things usually that, that substantiate your own viewpoint. But in any area, if you're in a classroom with a professor that you disagree with, you learn by negation. You will learn things not to do. You have to sit there and think, okay, he's made a good argument for his position. Now, now I better be able to answer his argument. So a student who sits in a classroom where he's expected to do things that, that he may not agree with, that he thinks may be a waste of time, it teaches him humility and he, and he ought to be thinking about What's wrong with this position? Where does it uh, have its weaknesses? How has the this teacher misrepresented or misunderstood the Word of God? And so uh, a seminary student needs to think about it that way. I get fed up with the arrogance of some men who go to seminary and think, well, I'm going to take this course, this course, and this course and forget the other courses because, you know, I might have to do something that, that I consider to be a waste of time. And that man should never, ever go in a pulpit anywhere because he has never learned the principle of humility. He's never learned the prince. He's not teachable at all because I found that in many courses, and I had to take some real uh, waste of time courses when I was in seminary, but there was always something there uh, that you learned, even if it was by negation. A pastor needs to get trained, and he needs to... Um, uh, make those decisions early on in life, but sometimes you can't. Sometimes you've already made decisions, you've gotten married, you've started to have a family, and then you grow to maturity and you realize uh, that you have the gift of pastor-teacher. Well, now you have to apply something called the faith rest drill, because if God wants you to train for the pastoral ministry, then you need to trust God to provide the resources when you go to seminary. I remember uh, the testimony of a guy who was in my class at seminary. I did not know this about him. Real quiet guy, uh, not like most pastor teachers, just a real quiet guy. You never knew much about him. And he was in, I remember he was in a couple of classes with me in first year 
uh, in seminary, and I don't remember seeing him later on. We had different classes together. But I remember hearing him get up and give his testimony when we graduated. So he managed to make it through those four years on schedule. And he told the story about how he had really been accepted to start seminary the year before we began. But his wife became pregnant. So he didn't want to go to seminary with the the responsibilities of a new baby and an infant. So he figured, well, the wise thing to do, this is how human viewpoint subtly enters in, said the wise thing to do was was to continue in his job and continue to be able to to, uh, financially take care of the, the family. Well, halfway through the year, few months later, his wife miscarried. Well, now they weren't going to have a family. He reapplied to seminary, and he decided to start the next year. So he began the uh, same year I did. We matriculated in September, and by November, his wife was pregnant with twins. See, God is going to teach him that God is going to supply the resources and the Lord took care of him, provided him with jobs and income and folks who supported him financially. And he made it through in four years, despite the fact that not only did she have the twins, but in his third year, I think she had a third child. And the Lord provided for them. And so you get some people operating on uh, just pure human viewpoint concepts of responsibility. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm not arguing for irresponsibility. But we have to go to another level as believers and recognize that God is going to supply our needs when we uh, are following his will. And so sometimes that means that we trust the Lord and we go to seminary, no matter what that entails. And so we have to be faithful That's where a pastor teacher begins to learn what faithfulness is, is in getting his training and going through that academic process and that academic discipline. Well, we'll come back next time and we'll continue to talk about what it means for a pastor teacher to be faithful and how God looks at the accountability of the pastor teacher next time with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word to be challenged by the fact that you have given each of us spiritual gifts. Not all are pastor teachers, but others have different spiritual gifts, different responsibilities. And for every one of us, the the issue is, are we faithful in growing to spiritual maturity? Are we faithful in utilizing that spiritual gift for the benefit of the body of Christ? Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. All you need to do right where you sit is to put your faith alone in Christ alone. Scripture says we all have a problem. It's called sin. And because of sin, we fall short of God's perfect righteous standard. But the penalty for that, the Scripture says, is spiritual death, separation from God, and eternal condemnation. But God provided the perfect solution. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross as a substitute for our sins. He paid your penalty in your place on the cross so that all you have to do is accept that payment. And you do that simply by believing that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. You can do that right now, right where you sit. Simply put your trust in Christ alone. Father, we thank you for the things we studied today. We pray that you would challenge us with them. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.